Lord Jesus Christ, you are the good shepherd of our souls. Oh Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, that we might hear your voice, that you might minister to us again. It's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. It's really strange to be here right now because I was literally like crawling on the floor this time last week. Uh, so praise the Lord, I was, as, as I was uh, preparing uh, this sermon to preach last week um, and then being struck with that pain, uh, I was uh, just, my attention was drawn to that verse, and he shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I was like, yes, Lord, please do that now. And so thank you, Lord, for answering that prayer. Um, Wonderful. So uh, have you, do you ever have like extremely vivid dreams? Uh, in particular, do you ever have really strong dreams about flying? This is something that I, I don't quite as frequently anymore, but I used to have flying dreams all the time when I was a kid. And for those of you who are counselors and psychoanalysts, maybe you can tell me uh, what that means, you know, pick, pick me apart or whatever. But it, it was usually the same. Like, it was kind of like in, if you've ever played the video game Super Mario Brothers, and he jumps like three times, and on the third jump, he like launches into the air. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like two of you, awesome, great. No more Nintendo references from Pastor Rick. So anyway, I would jump and then just launch into the air and start flying everywhere. It was super, super fun. Uh, I, I have dreams of like, or memories of, of flying through like sporting events, and through forests, up through clouds, or sometimes like inside. Um, I even remember when we were still having church at the Nokomis Community Center, I once had a dream about flying around in the gymnasium up there. It was super, super fun. And if you've, if you've ever had a really vivid dream like that, you probably remember waking up and being like, was that real? You know, like your brain is just trying to register like where you're at, um, whether or not that was actually real, if those abilities had in fact been endued to you. And for me, like I was so, I so badly wanted those to be real. I was completely enchanted by the concept of, of flying, especially as a kid. I remember hiking up in Colorado and uh, to the mountains and just being like, Lord, please give me the ability to fly, like, right now. That'd be so great. I was just enchanted and mesmerized by that. Uh, there is something deep inside of me that is just touched by that, that concept of flying. You see, sometimes uh, there, is, there is tremendous power whenever our dreams clash with reality like that. Now, John's vision here in Revelation is absolutely incredible. It's like a window of heaven has been opened up. And we're left here wondering like, oh my goodness, was this real? It was so amazing. It, it touches these desires that are deep down within us. You know, kind of like a, a long distance runner who halfway through is, is somehow miraculously given a vision of, of herself, you know, at the, at the trophy um, podium there and receiving something, you know, halfway through her race. You know, we're being shown here a vision of what it's gonna be like at the absolute end of time when all of this journey is wrapped up and brought to a conclusion. And so we're left here wondering, like, is this real? Now, to be clear, these aren't just fanciful dreams from the writer, John, from his subconscious. This is a clash of heavenly realities and a human being's very limited understanding and limited language at trying to describe what it is that the Lord showed him. 
These are God-given longings that, that well, there are, there are God-given longings that, that he has planted within every human heart, longings for, for justice and for healing and for celebration. And we're seeing the culmination of those things. We're seeing those things being fulfilled. John here is getting a glimpse into a truth against which all of our own desires and, and longings must be measured. So I want us to move through this in three different movements uh, through this passage from Revelation chapter seven. So we're told here that there is, a, in verse four, that there is a, uh, there is a number that are sealed. Uh, there are people there who have been gathered, 144,000 who have been sealed from every tribe of Israel. Uh, the, portion, the verses that we skipped there are the 12 tribes that are listed. And then later in verse nine, John says, I looked and behold, there was a great multitude. This number, this multitude was, was no one could number them from every nation and tribe and people and language. So in English, we love rhyming. You know, a lot of our songs have, you know, we, we love rhyming. Uh, the song that, that's been stuck in my head is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are, as I try to sing my little boy to sleep uh, as often as possible. But in Hebrew, Hebrews love rhyming as well. Uh, but it's not an audible rhyme that you would hear in Hebrew. Instead, in Hebrew, they rhyme things thematically. In fact, if you were to just open your, your Bible to Psalms, you know, anywhere, you'll see examples of this. So, for example, in Psalm 46, we read, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And these parallel statements, they're, they're rhyming ideas. And those parallel statements are meant to inform one another. It's just a beautiful way of elaborating a truth to us. Well, throughout the book of Revelation, John is rhyming entire images and pictures for us. And that's what we see in this passage here of the 144,000, but then also the great multitude. These are two rhyming, thematically rhyming images that are to portray the same idea to us. They are two pictures of the same group of people. John sees a great multitude of God's redeemed people. And from one perspective, this is Israel. This is God's covenanted people who he has been raising forth for thousands of years. Since the days of Abraham, God has been longing to bring his people together to worship him in spirit and in truth. He led them through the Red Sea and established them in the promised land. And then here in this picture, we see every individual is numbered and organized and known by God himself. But then from another perspective, this is God's people from every nation, from every tribe, from every language. They've been cleansed from sin, bought by the, or washed by the blood of the lamb and brought into the safety of God's temple. Here, the number is, is unknown. It's just as vast and large as the stars in the sky. You see, we are seeing here a vibrant picture of God's people. So what do we learn about God's people from these images? Well, they're sealed. That is, they bear the sign of God upon them. Nothing can harm them. But also, they're clothed in white robes and they carry palm branches. These are both ancient symbols of victory. Their enemy has been defeated and now they celebrate in the safety and protection and love of God himself. Do you see what this is? This is a picture of all those who've gone before us. It's a picture of you. You're in this image. You're a part of that innumerable number who are praising the Lord there. This is that final day that John is showing us 
that final day in which all of us will see our Lord face to face. And so God gave this image to John, and the church has stewarded it throughout the generations, and God is speaking to us through this passage, saying, don't lose hope. Your race is not finished, but this is what the victory is going to look like. There is a huge celebration that's coming that none of us could hardly even have the imaginations to fully comprehend. And you have been sealed, not with some kind of physical brand or whatever, but with with the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit. And through that, by that, nothing can separate you from the love of God. By the death of Jesus upon the cross, darkness has been defeated, and you have every right and privilege of that victory that you see described. So my first point is that you belong to God. Now, at the beginning of this passage, we see this picture of huge angels who are holding back these great winds from all across the world. These these storms are being held back. In verse 1, it says, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth were holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow against any earth or sea or against any tree. In other words, all life is going to be protected here. Chaos is going to be staved back. And then later, we hear an angel say in a loud voice, do not harm the earth and the sea and the trees because until we have sealed the servants of our God. In other words, there will be a day in which all chaos and disaster and evil itself will be held back. Now, it's really interesting. Uh, throughout the Bible, God, or God never seems to answer the question, why do bad things happen? But it's a question that we all ask. It's, it's a question that uh, comes up again and again in the scriptures. Job asks it. Uh, several of Jesus' disciples ask this question. Why do bad things happen is a question that, that always gets asked. But nowhere in the scriptures does God give a direct answer to that question. But instead, the Bible tells us over and over again, and we see it here, that evil will be contained. Evil will be held back. Its power to destroy is limited. Evil is named, it's numbered, it's limited, it's bound. As Eugene Peterson says, all evil takes place in the historical arena bound by Christ and prayer. Isn't that beautiful? Evil is contained. So here in the Bible, God names evil. He gives it a title. Uh, In fact, uh, Pastor Peter last week when he was preaching on Revelation 13, we saw quite vividly uh, the ways in which the Bible describes evil as this cunning force who tries to devour the people of God. This is the devil, the Bible seems to tell us. Evil is cunning and wicked. God calls evil things like covetousness, partiality, greed, and hatred. So when God names evil, he shows us that he knows exactly what it is. He has measured it up, and he knows how to deal with it. But furthermore, evil's days are numbered. There's a limit to it, beloved people of God. Its power will putter out. Its chapter will come to a close. Its shriek of horror will stop. Evil has a beginning, but evil also has an end. Again, Peterson says, evil is a finite episode and not a total triumph. Evil has its end. So a few weeks ago, uh, we, we uh, were a host of a digital conference called the Culture Summit, which was taking place down in Nashville. And Andy Crouch gave uh, a really wonderful talk. He talked about uh, technology and our society's fascination with it and, and the hope in which we put in technology. 
And he defined technology as science plus a dream. Isn't that interesting? Science plus a dream. Yes, science or technology requires scientific research and really smart people to figure things out and solve problems. But technology also has a dream to it. Uh, there's something that it's, it, it's trying to aspire towards. And that dream is to alleviate human suffering, to try to eradicate uh, things which plague us and inconvenience us. And it's tempting for us to think that technology is actually achieving its goal. You know, we have these little pocket computers that, that link us into all the information of the entire world. Uh, we're able to accrue wealth at a degree in which has never been able to be done before in human history. So in some ways, the, the dream of technology seems to be true. But the problem, though, is that for hundreds of years, this promise of better human living has just never actually come to fruition. It always seems as if it's just around the corner. Any fair assessment of human history shows us that evil is not going to be eradicated through human ingenuity. Now, we should be investing in, in bettering um, our lives and in, in educating ourselves and establishing more just laws for the land and stuff, but there will always be wars and poverty and hunger and plagues to remind us that the story is much more complex than that. And what we see here in the scriptures is that God will step in at some moment, that he will say to us that enough is enough, that he will dispatch his heavenly armies, that he will stave off all evil and contain it away from this world. We will, the voice of God's people will be heard again. Evil will be contained. So in verse 15, an angel speaks up and says, God who sits upon the throne will shelter his people with his presence. They will not hunger nor thirst anymore, and the sun will not strike them. The lamb will be their shepherd. He will guide them to living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Yes, God is a great king who sits upon the throne, and we should revere him. We should respect him. We should honor him. But God is also a tender shepherd who lives among his people, who puts his arm around them, who looks for the lost sheep, who draws them near to himself, who bandages their wounds. He is a gentle guide. He is their protector. He is a tender healer. So the references to hunger and thirst and the hot sun are, are meant to remind us of, the, of Israel's wandering throughout the wilderness. So just as God brought his people out of the wilderness and into the promised land, so too he will carry you and I through the dangerous perils of this world and establish us forever in his presence. Like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wing, the Lord shelters his people with his presence. The threats of this world dare not come near because he stands close and tall. Beloved, you are loved by God. It's not just enough that God would stave off evil. He wants to draw you close to him. He wants to love you and protect you and to bring you to living waters. So you belong to God. Evil is going to be dealt with. Evil is temporary. Evil is small. And you are loved by God. So I open my sermon referring to dreams that feel as though they're real. But sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes it's the real world that feels like a nightmare. We've got plenty of examples of that, right? Just even in the headlines of the last 24 hours. 
And we've been talking about revelation and these, these future realities. But these, yes, these are future realities, but at the same time, these are things, these are spiritual truths that we can tap into and participate in actually here and now. Several weeks ago uh, uh, for my Easter sermon, I, I talked about a Christian's superpowers as being the ability to forgive, and that's, that's absolutely true. That's, that is something remarkable that through the power of the Holy Spirit we are given as people who ourselves have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But there's another Christian superpower that we learn about here. It's that the Christian can sing in the midst of trouble. The Christian can sing in the midst of sorrows, In verse 10, we hear the people crying out, salvation belongs to our God. And then they just explode with these attributes of God, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. And you think they could go on and on and on. You know, these things be to our God. Christians sing in prison. Christians sing on their deathbed. Christians sing going to the gallows. Christians sing in the night. Christians sing in the desert. Christians sing in the midst of the storm. Christians sing over and over throughout, you know, here this morning, throughout all of history, throughout the the worst events of human history, Christians boldly sing the beautiful truths that we read about here in this passage. And this is spiritual warfare. There are realities that are being rattled by our singing. When you worship God, you are tapping into the realities that we read about here in this passage. And you are fighting the darkness. You're staving it off. Not as weak and frail human beings, but as men and women who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we do every week in our liturgy. Every week as we come to the table, we say that we, that we join our voices with what? With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. That means that we are participating in the heavenly chorus. We're reminding ourselves of the great day in which we will stand with brothers and sisters, those who've, spiritual mothers and fathers, those who've gone before us, and we will see the Lord Jesus wipe every tear away from our eyes. So what haunts you? What strips uh, your, your hope from this world? What stirs up your anxiety? What stirs up imagination, or what stirs up fear in your imagination? In those moments, gather together with God's people and sing with them. Remind yourselves of the deep truths that we hold in our holy scriptures. Because when you do so, you stave off, you hold back those powers of darkness. You declare that evil's days are numbered and God himself will wipe away every tear. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are the victorious one. You are the one who conquered death and darkness itself. And so Jesus, may may we be aware of your presence. May we know that you are here walking among us. Lord, may we be comforted by your presence. Fill us with your joy and your hope, Lord, that there will be a day in which you make all things new. We love you, Lord, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen.